Hey guys, um, thank you so much for watching. I have back on Scott Santins. All of you know Scott Santins. Um, he is commonly referred to as the UBI expert um, by various media. And, you know, I actually just wanted to really catch up with him. I've been wanting to actually for a little bit, but um, first of all, because the income March is coming up, uh, not this Saturday, but the next Saturday, uh, September 19th. So take part in that. It's happening in like 40 cities across the world. And also, you know, I want to get your take, Scott, you know, it's been six months since the lockdowns began uh, and everything kind of went downhill from there. And then we passed the CARES Act, right, which was like the $1,200 for a certain yeah. kind of people. Um, and now it looks like Congress isn't really getting their act together for the second relief bill. So I'm just really curious because, you know, throughout this whole thing, you know, we were doing this big push of like getting Joe Biden and all the Democrats to like sign on to UBI, something that some other Democrats in the Senate were pushing $2,000 a month, um, universal throughout this whole thing. And um, as someone who has been at the forefront of all of that and is championing UBI and has done so for years, I'm curious how you're feeling right now, um, you know, from that, from six months ago to now and that whole journey. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, certainly a, a, a lot has has happened, and uh, you know, it's 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 crazy to to think that that we I, I think we spoke last in um, was it February? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it was like right before all this stuff started, and it just feels like you know over a year ago, like well over a year ago since since then. Yeah. And. Um, it's just yeah, so many things have happened, but um, like so when all this when this first hit and suddenly like things became more possible that weren't possible before, um, you know certainly I was I was really pushing for some kind of stimulus payment, you know, at all, um, you know, preferably emergency based income, but um, at least a stimulus payment, and. Uh, I think that was a big win for us to actually get that stimulus payment. Like, so, you know, I would have preferred it would have been fully universal, but even as just a stimulus payment, it, it went out to leave in total, uh, 190 million, uh, people were included in it. Um, so, I mean, that's, uh, or that's, uh, that's, that's a lot of checks that went out. And as far as like people feeling what it's like, you know, suddenly, like you get this check for twelve hundred dollars, and like, oh, how how nice! Or it just appears in your bank account, and oh, look, twelve hundred dollars. And what am I going to use that on? Well, you know, a lot of people ended up using it on, you know, their their housing, their food, um, you know, things that they really needed to spend it on during this time. So it wasn't so much like a like a stimulus payment. Um, you know, it was it was really more of like a relief payment um, in order to enable people to to cover the basics that that they were no longer able to cover thanks to you know our unemployment and so that was i, I think a, a big deal for people to even feel what that's like to to like be recognized by the government with like an amount of money that is substantively useful um and to think, like, what would it be like if you get this every month? Like, what if you could always look forward to that same payment every month and be able to plan around that? So, you know, that was that was a big deal. And however much I, I disliked the 
the use of of an unemployment boost um, instead of like a larger a universal payment. Um, that too was was kind of its own um, experiment into basic income. Mm-hmm. In that you know you were providing uh, this twenty four hundred dollar flat boost to the entire like population of unemployed who applied for it and managed to receive it. So what was the impact of that? Well, the impact was that, you know, suddenly um, I think it was, was two thirds of the recipients of that amount actually receiving more than what they were getting, you know, prior to that. And that ended up being a, that resulting like a 10% boost in consumer spending in the economy and so like, here we are in this like period of, of, of mass unemployment where people, you know, 30 million people at, at the max were, were unemployed um, like all at once. And at that same time, our economy was like still able to to avoid like, you know, utter collapse mm-hmm. um, because of all that spending was still there. And that was thanks to that, you know, this this flat amount of money that was provided, like it had all those conditions attached, but like it was there and it actually prevented so many other jobs from being lost. Like we would have lost even more jobs if people didn't have that spending power that was provided by that unemployment boost. So I, I think that shows like the the macroeconomic evidence for like how effective a basic income would be in the economy. Because like if, if it was that effective at at you know twenty four hundred dollars a month for this slice of the population, then what would it be if we had like the entire you know population um, having that spending boost and that spending stability as well? And of course, you know we would see this this growth in jobs, this uh, expansion of the economy, and um, you know that's that's great. That's what we're that, that, that's another you know argument for UBI. So between those two programs that we saw, I think that we did see more evidence um, for UBI from this. And I think that, that um, you know, as a result of this, too, we saw that, you know, there is massive support for another stimulus check and that there is, you know, a lot of support for recurring stimulus payments. And so, you know, it's it's frustrating that that we have a Congress where actually the only thing they agree on right now is a second stimulus check and they still can't pass that because both sides want all this other stuff shoved into it. Uh, but at the same time, it's positive that actually they do agree <laughs> that that is something that, that, that both sides think is a good idea to make sure that those checks go out to people and they have that money to spend. So like, I, I do think, I, I do feel hopeful that we'll see a second stimulus check prior to the, um, uh, hopefully the election, but at least before the end of the year. And then I think that, you know, depending on what happens um, at the election, uh, because we would have had, you know, two stimulus payments and those positive effects from those payments, that it would be easier to say, look, as part of our economic recovery in, you know, potentially the Biden administration, um, we need we and we know that stimulus payments work. So you know, let's do six months of stimulus payments. And you know, if we can, I think that's very doable. 
to as like something that that can be done and then if if that's achieved then i think that really opens up uh as far as like a permanent ubi in a much bigger more achievable way than you know has been um previously available so it's like each has been a step you're like it was a great step with the stimulus check would be another step with the second stimulus check if we could get multiple checks in a row then that's another big step. And then the only thing after that is, all right, let's just keep it going. We the, Those six months, you know, whatever amount of checks really did well. It was good macroeconomically. It was good for our health. It was good for, you know, the the people and stress and, and you know, everything. And so if you can if you can show enough time, then I think that that, that will really help our, our evidence base and also just you know, the people who don't care about events that, mm -hmm. that if you're if you're just you're heading it, if you're getting this amount and you're feeling it and you're benefiting from it, then it just, you know, it's more likely to be like, yeah, let's keep doing this. This makes sense. There's what, what are the downsides to to this, you know, money that's really making a difference to me and the economy? You know, Scott, I, I agree with you that there's been so much progress made with like the I guess the popular sentiment and just like awareness around universal basic income and the potential positive effects that it would actually have and on people's lives um, through all this. I will say that the GOP just introduced, a skin, I'm sure you know this skinny bill yeah. that doesn't even include the stimulus checks, which was the one thing that both the Democrats and Republicans agreed on. So that is, um, is quite frustrating. And I, and I, I love your optimism and thinking we're going to get something passed through. And I'm really hoping we do because we absolutely need it as we both know, but like, it's really frustrating in that. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen before the election at the same time, you know, that like over 55 or it was like, it's like 55% of Americans support universal basic income or something like that now. Yeah. Um, whereas like a year ago. Yeah. yeah like, a year ago, not even 50% of Americans really knew exactly what it was or how it worked. Um, you know, it just, I, I just feel Congress is incredibly disconnected right now from the people um, and, you know, their wishes and their needs and everything like that. What is, and their biggest, their biggest criticism throughout this whole thing is we can't print more money you know, um, it, the inflation and yada, yada, it's too much money doing the extra, you know, we're talking about this unemployment, the extra $600 a week on top of the unemployment, even though it boosted our economy, we saw the spending, um, we saw the economic effects, that's still the excuse being used. And I still hear people online somehow still saying that. Um, I know that you talk about this ad nauseum and it probably gets really repetitive and annoying for you, but can you, can you just kind of explain again um, why you were not worried about the printing of the money in order to have this measure passed, like, you know, the extra help for people every month. Yeah. So, um, uh, first of all, before I, before I mentioned that, I just want to mention too, that, um, uh, so what you were saying about the growth and support, I just want to point out that, yeah, it, over the course of a year, it went from like 43%, six months later, it was 49%. And then another like uh, another six months later, I think um, uh, it's now 55%. So you see, do see this like steady and also quick growth. And at, yeah, at the same time, Congress doesn't care, you know, about us. They they care about you know their their donors and you know the people who have influence um, with them. 
And, but those people are also like mm -hmm. getting more interested in, in this and, you know, their, their own like interests are on the line. And so that's why you have like people like Pelosi suddenly starting talk, talk about guaranteed income. You know, it's like, she didn't do that because like, you know, she's paying attention to the polls and, and seeing that suddenly people love it. It's like the people who she's listening to are actually talking about this. Mm -hmm. And so then she's, you know, more open to it. And also I think it's really positive that, you know, the more and the more recent things is, is yeah, at the same time as the skinny bill was this like, I mean, it's just purely a political move where they wanted to create a bill that the Democrats would say no to so that they could say, oh, look, the Democrats don't want to help right. you guys. And so they purposely like, you know, lowballed their previous lowball to like say, let's just, you know, put something that they really don't like and that they're definitely not going to pass so that we can get them. So that's even why they pulled out. You know, it's not that because they don't like it. It's that they really didn't want to pass that mm -hmm. bill. It's just purely political maneuvering. And yet it, it's it's upsetting how their political maneuvering with this stuff of massive importance right, right now. Um, but it's also like where we are. Like here we are. And there's just, you know, two months left to a major, major election. And uh, of course, they're going to be just doing all the politics that they can to try to, you know, win. So, you know, here we are. And I think part of that, too, is that's why Trump recently said, hey, there's $300 billion that's been unspent. And um, I would like to distribute uh, and but I can't do this on my own. Congress has to agree to it. So, you know, at the, at this, now Trump is saying, I want to pay everyone. And I, I, I think that, you know, there's there's political motivation there as well that that benefits us like this is actually we're seeing this in Brazil. And so uh, Bolsonaro is is kind of like the the Trump in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually wasn't really excited about doing like, you know, um, uh, like stimulus payments there in, in Brazil to get money to people because um, he's like, you know, kind of like Trump and, and doesn't like, you know, welfare and those other stuff. And but they started doing that because they needed to. And then as a result of that, uh, they actually have reduced poverty and inequality there. And people are actually really happy about this money that they're getting to the point where where his popularity in the polls is going up. And it, that was something that was, you know, he didn't do that for that. But he's enjoying that rise in popularity. Right. And. I, I think Trump is smart enough to to recognize stuff like that and say like, oh, hey, like this. Is, and I think that's part of the reason why he said, I want to pay everybody. I just need Congress's, you know, to sign off on this. So, so that doesn't happen. So that's why I also think that that there is this possibility that we'll see that because it is good politics to actually make sure everyone gets a check before they vote. And it's just a matter of fighting over who can get credit for that check. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, as far as like the inflation goes, like at, 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 at this peak, like when we were, we were doing the $600 a week unemployment boost, we had the stimulus check and there's, you know, all this money being pumped in from just all over the place uh, into the, from the fed, into the, the banks and, and, you know, from PPP loans and, you know, like all this stuff is going into the economy and uh, inflation was at 0.065%. And, um, you know, right now it's at, um, or it's a 0.65%. And now it's at 
point, um, what is that? It's a 1% now. Mm. Um, so like this is not having the effect that people, you know, are constantly saying that, oh, this is going to, you know, cause this rapid um, inflation. And it's, it's uh, part of that too is, or even like, it's more interesting too, because at the same time, like months ago, we were having serious like supply um, chain issues where, you know, suddenly people were, you know, for a time, maybe it was more difficult to get like milk, um, you know, even though say people were, there was so much milk at the farms that they were pouring it out, you know, and like there was, stores were were out of certain goods even though it's like we were still manufacturing plenty of that so it's like it's not that there was an issue of we weren't able to produce enough of this product it was that we had these supply chain issues that we had to organize and adapt to so that we could get those products to people in like a different way than we usually do it and like even during that time, we just didn't see this like kind of massive inflation that people were always complaining about. So like we had supply restrictions, and at the same time, more and more money, and yet no inflation. And so you know people can ask like you know why that is, and mm-hmm. the, the 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 important part to understand with like inflation is it's it's really about you know what is our what is our capacity to create and um, are we surpassing that in, in, and also when you pay people, it's not like capacity, your, it's not like supply doesn't increase, you know? So every store wants to make sure that they meet the demand of their customers. So, you know, like if a, if a store is able to sell something there, can you still, can you still see me? Mm Yeah. Went there for a second. Oh. Okay. So, um, as 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 suppliers sell more stuff, and and they know that let's say they're running out of stock, so they're like, oh, well, we need to get more of this, so we don't run out of stock. Um, you know, they're going to get more, and then that goes up the chain, so that the manufacturers create more. And you know, so it's not like that there a lot of these like manufacturing facilities. It's not like they're all running at a hundred percent. You know, it's like right. they just crank out as much as they possibly can. Uh, that's just not the way it works. Like they're they're meeting the demand of what they feel, you know, the demand is based on what people are buying from them. And right. so if people buy more, then they can produce more. And so y- you only run up against these, you know, inflationary pressures as far as like that kind of stuff is concerned when you can't increase the supply anymore mm-hmm. without like big investments. And even then, you know, you're going to make those investments because you want to meet that demand. So it could be like a temporary thing where, you know, you have to make like a new manufacturing facility or you have to, you know, somehow increase your production in some way, maybe hire more workers or, or whatever. Um, but then you're able to meet that demand and then the prices can go back down. So, you know, it's just this this fear that people have is 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 really just a fear. And what they should be afraid of is deflation. You know, and that's what that's what you know the economists were afraid of, that could be potential as a, a, a from this crisis was that people, you know, if you start losing money, then the money comes out of the economy. People aren't able to spend, so then people get laid off, and then they're not able to spend, and then so more people get laid off, and like that's like where you get these right. Great Depression scenarios, where you know. It's like in the Great Depression, 
it's not like we didn't have the capacity to produce all this stuff. It was all still there. Like we had all these machinery, we had the resources, we had the people, but instead it was like this just weird situation where, um, you know, I described in like one of my articles that like, we felt like we ran out of space box. You know, it's like, we just, it was like an imaginary thing where it's like, oh, well, you know, it's like you show up at a, at a, at a construction site and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, we're all out of inches. And so like, oh, no, everyone's gonna go home, we're out of inches. And so like in the depression, that's what we felt like, it's like we were out of inches. And so yeah, it, it's, it's when it comes to money, that's really kind of what it is, is, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's like, it's like these inches where you got to make sure that, that it's, it's a tool that we're using, but it's not right. like limited. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's it, the, the, the only limits are imposed by like, you know, these actual in, inflationary prices that happen, you know, when you run out of, of, you know, supply capacity and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, it just doesn't happen automatically like this is a it's the economy is this complex adaptive system that responds according to you know what people are buying and, and selling and you know exchanging and it's just um it's just not the case that that you can suddenly you know massively increase inflation like people think as far as like you know turning on the money printers and there's all this more money chasing the same amount of stuff and of course prices will rise it's just not that simple it's more complex than that and uh, I think that we've you know, even seen that 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 is the case. And there's there's still more concern about, you know, potential deflation, um, you know, especially depending on if the the permanent unemployed keeps on rising as it is right, right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it is a very complicated um topic to really fully wrap your head around but i think you know the production capacity is a really important point where it's not like we've reached production capacity for these things we don't have a limited really number of a lot of these goods that we have um you know we can we can produce more goods um yeah. and we haven't reached that yet and money is really just like kind of a tool an efficiency tool exchange goods and Assumption and everything. So, uh, okay, I'm going to go off the topic a little bit just because William wants to ask me, wants me to ask you this question, which is, has Andrew talked about bringing you on board if he is hired to ha help in the White House? <laughs> uh, no, he he hasn't mentioned anything uh, like like that. But um, yeah, I would be, I'd be certainly be happy to help in in whatever way I can if he's uh, somehow you know part of of the White House. Um, yeah, this was actually a topic of discussion the other day too, when they were like, oh, Scott Santons needs to be Andrew Yang's advisor once he makes it into the, um, Department of Technology. But, um, uh, I, I did actually have, and, and you know, I'm just going to like steer a little bit into a political question. I am curious about, I'm sure other people are also curious about your thoughts on how likely, uh, I'm not sure if you, you want to answer this question, but if Donald Trump proposed a universal basic income, if he became president in 2020, um, would you support him over Biden if Biden did not support that? <laughs> um, yeah, so... It, <laughs> I it, know it, this is a landmine question. So many people it, have asked it's, me that, it, so. it's not so much... Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of a landmine, but like it's it's it's... Like, Kind of, it's a longer, it's a long discussion. I think that I mean, it needs it needs some some space. Um, I guess so. I would say, I personally do not think that Trump 
is ever going to um, propose UBI. And it's 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 weird. Like, um, like I think it's even weird that that he's not on record yet. So he just had an entire term as president. He's he's been president for for four years, and no one that I know of, it's not public knowledge that that someone has said, "Hey, what do you think about this idea of of universal basic income?" And he's he hasn't even really been talked um, uh, a lot about uh, as far as automation goes. So like there's there's like a couple comments as far as automation goes and, and he like waves them off and he doesn't really understand it. And so like automation isn't really something that he's thinking about. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to basic income, like the closest thing has, you know, his, um, uh, his daughter um, Ivanka has, um, uh, you know, talked about like the, the, you know, dignity of work and the importance of how no one actually wants to get like paid without, you know, for, for nothing or whatever. Well, and like, so she, like yeah. she's using that language. And I don't think that he disagrees with that. Um, like maybe she's even using that language because she has spoken to him about it. And that's what he thinks. Like, I don't know, but it seems possible. And, you know, it, it's just weird that even after all of this, he's just, hasn't even mentioned it. And so like for him to suddenly come out and say, Hey, let's do this. I think it's a great idea. I just don't think that that's realistic. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's possible where, you know, there's like a Bolsonaro situation and like he sees that, that this kind of thing is, is popular. And so, you know, maybe he would do it um, for that reason. Um, but at the same time, it's like, he doesn't seem to care what's like, popular with like you know a lot of people is, is popular with his base and unfortunately basic income is not popular with his base you know it would it would really be great for his base um but you have a lot of people just saying oh that's that's socialism um you know it, that's that's you know i don't want to get um you know i just give me a give me a job i don't want you know money or whatever um even though they're happy like catching the stimulus payment but like like the politics of this, I just, I just don't think that 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 he would do that. And on the flip side, like with Biden, I know that he doesn't like it either, you know. And 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 I know that 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 he speaks about this as like the dignity of work. But like the thing too is like at least he's on record about it, and we know that he knows what it is, and he just like disagrees with it. But at the same time, he's got you know Kamala Harris as his vice presidential candidate. And Kamala Harris has, you know, is is the one that's actually proposed, um, you know, something close to it at least as far as you know, two thousand dollars a month, uh, recurring for for quite a while. It's not fully universal, but she actually has long seen and been supportive of cash transfers, uh, uh, like direct cash payments to people being beneficial. Like she believes that um, to be like really helpful to people, you know, they know what's best for them. Mm -hmm. And so she's like a firm believer in like cash as a response. And so that's what to me is very positive um, there with that pick. I, I was excited about Kamala Harris um, being that pick for that reason. Um, like there's certainly, there's like a lot of other, you know, problems with her, um, uh, which is why, you know, I wasn't really supportive of her as a presidential candidate. Right. But like, I, I do think that her, that there is real support there for cash. And I think that's a positive thing. 
And I also think that that Biden is very much a politician. Um, and I think that can be to the benefit of something like base income, that that he does actually care about what the polls are saying. And so, you know, when it when when an issue actually is extremely popular, for the most part, like, you know, there are issues like with Medicare for all, which is something that has full majority support where he hasn't come around on it yet. Um, but there is stuff like gay marriage where he did come around on it um, really at the point where it gained majority support. And so I think that that there's the potential, at least, that the same thing could happen with him and basic income, especially if Yang is part of his administration and he has his ear and he values you know, what he's saying. I think that he could turn around. And I think that that um, certainly if like a bill passed through Congress and it was up to Biden to sign it mm -hmm. or veto it, he's not vetoing it. You know that I'm, I'm sure about that he's not going to, to veto it. Um, uh, and then with with Trump, I don't have that same feeling. Like if if a if a basic income bill got in front of Trump's desk and it was up to him to pass or veto it, I don't know what he would do. Um, that that that's concerning. And then there's also as far as like Trump versus Biden, there's just other stuff besides basic income, like really structural democratic, like who are we as a country kind of issues that that concern me and like i just he's very much authoritarian in his decision making in in what he says and, and does and I, I i think that it's dangerous right now um as we get like more fearful and more stressed out and um there's this kind of um and this is also why like trump was voted in the first place but like there's this more of an interest in like the kind of Superman kind of authoritarian figure that will, you know, fix things like on his own, you know, not mm -hmm. democratically. It's like people are giving up on doing things democratically and they're just hoping for like a strong man to come in and like do things and make things happen. Mm -hmm. And I, under I understand like the reasoning behind wanting to do that when you feel that Congress is completely broken and everything is broken. And, you know, we live in this country where it doesn't matter what everyone thinks and only matters what people with deep pockets and connected uh, in the power structure think um, so that you think, well, just screw all of that. And and I just want someone to do these things. And it's just it's it's I think that that's that's scary. And I think it's giving up on on what this entire country is, is built on and, and, and been based on as far as like power to the people and it's up to us to actually get our shit together collectively and and do things together. Um, like I was, I I watched his uh, the his speech at the at the RNC uh, when he used the White House as a prop for his convention, and I mean that it just felt like a surreal craziness kind of thing to watch, and. I was just really disturbed by by how, you know, just he breaks norms all the time. And, you know, this was, you know, this was actually illegal as far as like, you know, the ability to do that, but he just did it anyways. And, you know, and then the fireworks are going off and then he was like the opera singer. And I was like, what is happening right now? Like we, this is, this is like, 
this is dictator, like, you know, Kim Jong-un kind of stuff happening in the U.S. And so I, I just, I, I think it's, it's like, I don't see any like good things happening at all under like a second Trump administration. Um, you know, he, he, you know, he said like drain the swamp and instead like the swamp got more deep and, and more full. And he like, he hired the swamp and then welcomed it in. And, you know, it's just everything he says, it's, it's either, you know, a lie or he, he, he changes, um, you know, like on a dime, it says one thing, it says the other. So like, I, I, I just don't think that, um, you know, that, 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 that even if he said, I'm going to pass UBI. Right. I, I wouldn't believe him. And, and in, you know, even if he did it, like, I don't want it to be done as like a strong man measure. Like, I think it's important that, that we actually pass it like democratically as in it's because people want it and are pushing for it that we get it. I, I think that's like an important element of it too. Um, so, you know, I do want it to be like passed through Congress and it being like a, like a, you know, a, a people's like rising up kind of thing that mm -hmm. we make it happen. I, I think that's an, that's an important element of it and not just, you know, someone waving their, their, their magic wand or, or strongman scepter or something <laughs> and, and making it happen. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it, it's that, I mean, I think that is the perspective that a lot of people on the channel will find interesting, you know, cause I haven't had that much faith in Biden, but um, your point around how at least through Biden, um, he's going to listen to the people to a larger extent than potentially a Donald Trump who is just like pandering to his specific base um, who might not support universal basic income as much. Um, I think, you know, I, and I guess we only have so many choices, but it's kind of like it, we're gambling both ways on some level. The one credit I will give Trump, which you said about the drain the swamp, is that if it wasn't for Trump, people like me or some other people would not realize how incredibly corrupt the entire thing was. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, like, no, yeah, that's, I wouldn't that's true. have realized it. Yeah. I wouldn't, I mean, obviously Trump's incredibly corrupt, but I wouldn't have realized that the Democratic Party was also incredibly corrupt too. So, you know, but, but you know, going forward, um, I, I am trying to be hopeful for something better for sure. So for, from your perspective then, like, you know, um, if by, I think Biden is going to win at this point. Um, if and when Biden wins, you know, what, what, in your opinion, is it going to take, you know, other than getting some congressmen in support, basically, I'm like, what, how do you imagine? I'm sure you've played out a scenario in your head for how we can get universal basic income actually proposed on Congress, taken seriously, and on what timeline and what series of events would have to happen yeah. in order for that to happen. Yeah. Like, have you played that out in your head? Yeah, I, actually, that's what I'm working on in the background right now. Um, we got a we got a team together that we're we're figuring out. Okay, so assuming a Biden win, what do we need to do? And so, yeah, we're, we're figuring that out right now and um, working on that plan. And um, I, guess I can't really get into the the details of it, but I'll just say that you know this is. What it requires is we have to utilize the means available to us that we know work. So this is a matter of like 
this this fits in too what we're talking about like you have to use the swamp in order to drain the swamp mm -hmm. you know you can't keep your hands clean and it not not and make it happen like you really do have to utilize all the tools that you have available to you to um you know reach members that have influence and figure out you know who influences those members of influence so that you can influence them um, but you can you can plot out like a, a map of of key kind of points of of um, uh, let's say pressure points or something where um, if you can't actually press down on that point, there are points around that point that if you press, then you could potentially press that point. And so if you plot all those out, then it's a matter of 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 reaching out and and trying to actually push all those points. And you know, instead of this being like pushing, you know, 150 million points as far as like kind of majority support kind of thing, what you're instead you're doing is you're pushing these limited number, perhaps like, you know, say a thousand um, points where if you're able to reach enough of those, then you can actually make this work. Because again, we don't have like a functioning democracy it only responds to those people who have the money and have the power right. and so it, you have to like utilize that and and it's it sucks that that the only way to make government work is to utilize that but that's the reality that we have so you have to to acknowledge that reality and and do what you need to do in order to to make that happen and and I do think that's possible like I, I do think, especially because of this environment that we're in where we are in a crisis environment. And uh, I, I too think that, uh, that Biden will win. I, I think that there's going to be a huge mess as far as like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think Trump is going to step down and just go like, Oh, good job, Biden. Uh, <laughs> congratulations. Like this is going to be very different and i'm really worried about what that about what that actually looks like as far as what happens between um november 3rd and actually inauguration day in january um you know what is that going to look like as far as like you know uh, what lawsuits and what are the states going to do and is this going to end up looking like that episode of veep where oh, you know yeah. this is like the deciding factor happens in an actual congress like this there's a could be a real mess out of this, and in, in even if Biden wins, he's going to be taking over this country. That I feel that you know all Republicans, or at least many of them, are going to think that it was stolen or that he's not like the true president or whatever. And you know, and like what kind of what does that look like as far as like the cohesion of the country, even if Biden wins? So things are going to be really messy and. Yeah because things are going to be really messy, like that sucks. But at the same time, there's opportunity there to actually do things that are usually impossible because people in power who like depend on like stability and functioning government, like if they're looking at a situation where there's mass instability mm -hmm. and there's riots in the streets, like they're going to be much more likely to be like, okay, how do we fix this? What can we do? Okay. Mm -hmm. UBI, this you'll think this will, you know, mm -hmm. this, you're, you got a point there. I think this could work. Mm -hmm. And so that's when when these wheels start turning and the potential is there to actually pass this in a way that seems like impossible uh, right now. 
uh, to actually pass like an actual permanent UBI. But I do think that because of this situation and as it's progressing, that it could become possible in a way that people don't think is possible mm -hmm. uh, right now. I, uh, <clears throat> whoa, I don't know what happened in my throat, but um, I, I love, the, I mean, I don't love the chaos and the rioting and everything part of that scenario. Um, I a hundred percent agree with you. That's what's going to happen. And, and, and I have actually been saying this too, that I only think we pass universal basic income when everything just falls to shit. Like um, that is the quickest way to get UBI. So let's say everything falls to shit in November, December. Um, do, do, are you expecting like we could even have a UBI maybe passed next year, like within the year? I think that we should be pushing for a, a temporary recurring stimulus payment um, as soon as Biden takes over. Mm -hmm. um, like this should, and I, and I think that once you get that recurring stimulus payment that I think that, you know, a permanent, becomes that much more likely because you can already look at it and say, look, this is working in, in this way. We need more of this. We have to like actually have secure stability. Um, and so I think that, you know, kind of like a approach one at a time kind of thing. I think that, that um, it's doable to get like recurring stimulus payments um, as soon as, as, as um, the new Congress is in session, it could be, you know, one of their, their first bills potentially um, could be possible. And um, uh, another thing, too, I just want to mention that uh, also I, I consider a, a point for, for Biden that's important, and I think that it should be of interest to the Yang gang, is that um, he's said that he would, you know, and supports H.R. 1. And, you know, so for those who aren't familiar with H.R. 1, um, first of all, I, I really recommend everybody watch The Swamp. Um, have you watched that, Paget? It was on, um, it's like a documentary on HBO. No, should I? Okay, yeah. well, yeah, you said okay. Yeah, it's really it good. Watch it, yeah. So it's 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 really great as far as it, it explains like the swamp and like what it is and how it works and and you it follows. Um, I think it's f four or five members of uh, and it's the Freedom Caucus, and so you're you're they're you know all Republican members of Congress, and they're talking about. Um, draining the swamp and, and, you know, how, how corrupt everything is and all this other stuff. And, and they're like, like not typical Republicans. They consider themselves to be like anti-establishment Republicans. Um, and it's interesting how like you see that then they explain how, you know, like so much of this is about money and, and like they're supposed to make calls all the time. And, and in order to, to have like a committee chair to like be on a committee, you have to like pay, like, so let's say, um, you know, it's, it's not like, like you know, people who aren't familiar with the way Congress works, you would think that maybe someone is on a committee because there's some seen as some kind of leader or they're like voted on and like, oh, you be the chair because we think that you're the best as far as like, you know, ways and means go. You're really good at this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but instead, it's, a, it's all for sale. And so, you know, you have to be a member of Congress that can raise like, say, $200,000 um, and if you can raise $200,000, then you can have that seat. And so like all of this is for sale and you have to, you know, read who can, you can't raise that kind of money usually um, grassroots style unless you're like an AOC, uh, you know, or something who has like a passionate um, 
base of support, uh, you have to like ring up and, and dial those people with deep pockets in order to get that money in order to, you know, get those seats. So that's where a lot of this, you know, corruption comes from is just how much money is built into this entire system. So like, even if you're someone who's anti-establishment and you get into this system, mm -hmm. then obviously you're going to be corrupted by it because you don't really have any choices. Other words, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you mm -hmm. have to be like a kind of a grassroots star in order to get around that. And not everyone can do that. So HR one is discussed in this documentary too. And it's, it's, it's just interesting how like, each of the people who's followed in this that are talking about corruption, they all vote no on HR one. <laughs> and so they each have like their own like reasons why they voted, you know, no. And it's just, it, 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 just to see it happen. It's just, just fascinating and, and gross. Um, but so HR one would actually like the, the point of it is to reduce the corruption by like having like public matching of funds that you can public finance elections. Um, so, um, you know, like, let's say it, it's, it's not exactly like democracy dollars. Um, it's kind of like an amplification. So let's say someone donates, um, you know, $50 to mm -hmm. someone. And then it's, um, I think the, the, I think the multiplier is six. So then like the, the government would match that $50, um, you know, with like $300. And so it makes a big difference for grassroots right. campaigns to have that boost. And also there's a lot of, it's a package of things. So it's, it's all about uh, reducing the, the, the corruption and, and actually reforming the system so that you could actually like drain the swamp. And Biden has been actually has been really for this campaign finance reform for, you know, a long time. It's one of those things where you know that he actually wants to do it. It's, it's like something that he's personally interested in. And, you know, I wish that he would actually talk about that more. I yeah. Think this is the first that, time I'm hearing about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like if you're, if you're talking about this, like, you know, drain the swamp thing and he should be selling the fact that he really actually does want to drain the swamp. And, you know, he's for this bill and even like encouraging people to get their members of Congress to push this bill. And so like that bill actually did pass the House. It's one of those bills that, you know, they got majority support in the House and then, you know, got to the Senate. And of course, Mitch McConnell wants nothing to do with draining the swamp. So right. he's not going to let that, that happen. Um, but I do think that that because of that uh, and if we're in this scenario where Biden wins and most likely we Democrats do win the House and the Senate, um, then suddenly you absolutely can pass HR one. And, and I think that they would do that because again, it's HR one. And so, you know, this is HR one being a bill that, um, let's say was available previously as let's say it was like HR 4,000 something originally, because this is all numbered according to like chronological, um, as far as like when it's proposed. And so, um, when, when the, uh, the Democrats took the House in the midterms. The very first bill they put forward was HR one, and that was this anti-corruption stuff. So I think it's likely that because it's so important and because they passed it before, like it could be HR one again, as far, or or maybe it's a HR two because maybe it's like a coronavirus, you know, relief thing. Maybe as HR one, um, but it's it would be something right up there towards the front because the Democrats do consider that to be important and Biden is for it. So I do see that anti-corruption legislation passing. And as soon as that passes, 
then yeah, all these other things become much more possible because we've actually improved our democracy somewhat. And so then we can actually improve it more by things like democracy dollars, ranked choice voting, you know, these, these other important things. And, and of course, you know, UBI being something as well, but yeah, they, it's the mechanisms of government that's really mm -hmm. broken down that we, that we have to fix. And we're not going to fix that any other way. Um, you know, we, we can't just vote people in, um, because we can vote great people into office and, but they're still going to have their hands tied in the same way that people do now. Um, that's interesting about HR one and that it's interesting that I haven't heard that much about it, but in a way, I guess maybe that's a political thing where he's not talking about it so much because he doesn't want to upset, um, certain members of Congress. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't know that, but, um, you know, I, I do think democracy reform is so incredibly critical to get things like, like for instance, this whole relief bill thing. Like, I don't think we would necessarily be in this situation if, our democracy work the way that it should. So yeah. what what are some of the other policies that are like, um, are there any other policies that you would put before universal basic income or, you know, right around there in terms of importance at this point, you know, with you seeing everything that's happening right now? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, that, that this is, this is at the down ballot kind of stuff. Um, like the people have to recognize that, that you know, so much of, of voting and the way things work happens at the state level, and you know that's where you get like ranked choice voting to actually mm -hmm. you know happen. And so I'm really excited about um, ranked choice voting being voted on in Massachusetts and Alaska this year. Um, both of them are, are going to be voting on it in November, and uh, like it's disappointing. There's actually a couple others that. Uh, and this again, this shows like how much pressure there is against these important changes. Is that there there was a sufficient number of signatures? You know, they they it was in Arkansas, and it was done in um, uh, gosh somewhere else too. I can't remember where it is right off the top of my head. Um, but there were two other places that were that also I think gathered like you know, over a hundred thousand signatures each to, to get it onto the ballot in, in November. And, um, in each place, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the judge like overruled it or, or, you know, that went through the process and they're like, no, we can't count it. Um, and then it was actually kind of similar to something else that happened during Yang's campaign. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, it was like some signature initiative in some state, um, where, like they, they said that they didn't have, they didn't do it properly where they had like the entire um, printed out like wording of the, whatever you were signing uh, for each person or something like that. So it's like you have all these signatures, but then like you didn't cross your right. T's and dot your I's yeah. appropriately. So then it's not on. So like, that's the kind of thing where, where we need to, to make sure that, that that happens in every state that it possibly can. And you know, so Maine got it first, and I, I, hopefully Massachusetts and Alaska will be next. And then hopefully, in, then with three states on board, it'll be easier to get, say, like another five to ten or something states maybe in midterms in, in 2022. Like, um, or even, you know, it, it, that's like the like the grassroots stuff that people need to do is if, if you have like the potential to get signatures to put something on the ballot, that's what we have to do. 
um, that's where like real change happens um, where it doesn't matter like about like who's in power and, and um, you know, people writing checks and, and against this where, where you can get something on the ballot with enough signatures and um, you know, it's unfortunate that maybe you have to get a lot more signatures than you than you're supposed to because they're right. going to try to you know get rid of what they can. Um, but it is possible to have like an actual democratic initiative happen where you can vote on something that's popular for the people. And if you vote on something like ranked choice voting, that would vastly improve um, the the way that elections work um, state by state. Then that's when you start to actually change the system so that you can actually do things at the federal level in a way that you, know, you can't do otherwise. Um, you know, you, you, gerrymandering is just a massive problem and, you know, we got to fix that. And, you know, we, with, with HR one, you know, you get the public matching funds and, and with democracy dollars, but like um, automatic voter registration, um, mm-hmm. Also, automatic voter registration is part of HR one too. Um, like oh, I can't okay. Thing, but there's there's a like it's, I think six maybe major elements of HR one. Um, yeah, I recommend people look into it because um, I mean I fully support it and I think it's important. And uh, yeah, state by state, ranked choice voting extremely important. I completely agree with that. Ranked choice voting and democracy reform. I was going to say actually. Um, I wasn't sure if we would get universal basic income without democracy reform, but um, I actually think the scenario that you played out with everything going to crap, um, we could actually get a UBI. Uh, So, you know, during this time, we have seen some of the countries and also like cities um, in the U.S. and everything like that talking about UBI pilots or really experimenting with universal basic income. Mm Is there anything specifically that you have heard like in the past few months that has excited you that you're the most excited for and that you think really has legs that you can tell any specific uh, program or pilot that's coming on down the pipeline? Yeah. So um, first of all, um, yeah, I just tweeted about this yesterday uh, where the, um, the current number of mayors that have signed on to mayors for guaranteed income, mm-hmm. uh, that initiative is now up to 25. And so oh, they, wow. they launched with, uh, 11 and, and now they're up to 25. So like that already shows, you know, that's some great growth there as far as like the number of pilots, um, being planned in various cities and just the showing of support too. And, um, you know, I'm I'm part of this now as well because, and, and this is like kind of the story behind it. Um, when Michael Tubbs, uh, you know, launched the Mary's for Guaranteed Income Initiative, I was immediately excited and I was like, "Oh, this is this is great," because also suddenly this opened up an avenue for me to like contact my own governor or my own mayor, mm-hmm. and I thought, uh, uh, "Okay, so um, I've got to get my mayor on board. How do I do that?" and so um, I thought, okay, so I don't I don't have any contacts with with her directly, um, but I do know someone who might know someone who knows her. So <laughs> I reached out to him, and he did in fact uh, know someone um, in her office, and so he connected me to him, and then I was able to um, I, I, I pitched you know the this the fact that the mayors for guaranteed income, you know, existed and was something to, to support. 
and also um, an, an idea for a pilot here in New Orleans. And um, um, that did, uh, he was interested and then pitched it to her and uh, she was on board. Um, so like she joined Mayors for Guaranteed Income. Wow. And so, you know, there will be a pilot here in New Orleans um, based on what I was thinking would be a good idea for something here in New Orleans. And um, yeah, I'm excited uh, about that. Um, you know, I, I want to to do something that that hasn't really been focused on elsewhere um, as being like um, you know a data point that I think is important. And so, like a lot of these a lot of these pilots are are I see more as potentials for for stories. You know, in in it's there's good data that can come out of them. But there's also good stories, and like there's there's been a lot of this already. So we already have a lot of good data, but there's like still data that we haven't really looked at. Mm -hmm. And so I do want to do look at that. And then I also think that the the stories that can come out of looking at these new specific things um, could also just be extremely um, um, you know inspiring and and thought provoking as far as like you know how much of a difference space can come, uh, could make, uh, along a lot of other, um, you know, points of the, the spectrum. Like I'm really like, especially interested like in crime here in new Orleans and you know, this, I, I want people to think about the costs of crime and what that entails. And I don't even, I don't only mean like economic costs. I, I also mean like, you know, personal costs that, that are imposed, especially on, um, the black community in, in America, um, that disproportionate imposition of, of, of what that means in like this racist kind of justice system that we have, um, you know, what happens if we're actually able to reduce crime and actually prevent people from being fed into this system that just mm -hmm. like eats them up and, and further perpetuates this, um, you know, systemic racism that we see. Uh, so that's kind of what my thinking is for, for something here in, in New Orleans. And um, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, hopefully there could even, you know, be even more and more and more mayors signing on board. And, you know, the more mayors sign on board, that again, it's, it's showing this like this, this growth of support. And it's showing um, and will show like various things to test at and, and look and stories to tell. Um, as each of these pilots start going and it shows that, um, you know, these like positive benefits coming, coming out of, uh, those various pilots. And, um, yeah, like there, the, again, like there's like so many things that I'm excited I know, to there's a potentially lot. talk about that I can't talk about, you oh, know, but, oh, I but thought you meant just other, like, no. other countries around the world, like Germany and then Russia, strangely. I don't know. Yeah, I no, there's, there's a lot of yeah great stuff happening all over the world. That's also like a whole other like conversation to have. Um, but yeah, there is like another pilot being planned, um, that I am excited about that. I can't say anything about, but I am excited about <laughs> that. I, that I do think would like help really move this needle forward, um, even more. Uh, so you actually, so you actually spoke at the people's convention the other weekend. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how that, because you were just talking about the dignity of like, you know, um, of just being a human being and how you only have freedom, true freedom, if you're able to have economic freedom. So 
how did that happen? Like, how did you get asked to speak at the people's convention? Is that something, you know, because they are representing a, like a third party, which some people might see as being a threat, right. To, um, the idea behind this, even this general election, even though they're not putting up a candidate, but like, um, can you explain just kind of the background and how you got involved in that and, and where they stand on universal basic income, um, and, and any progress that was made on that front with progressives? Yeah. So, um, I've actually, I, I know, um, uh, you know, the founder is Nick Branna and, um, uh, I've known him for years. Um, we, uh, have discussed basic income on multiple occasions. He's a, you know, supporter and he wanted, um, you know, to, to explore, you know, adding it to the platform, um, even, you know, years ago. And, um, um, we've even spent time here together in New Orleans, um, talking about it as well. And, um, I had done like a previous appearance, like on his podcast, uh, too, that people could find like on YouTube, if you're curious to see kind of more of that history. Um, but yeah, it was because we already had that history together and because UBI is something that he personally thinks is important and, and, um, you know, wants to be part of, of in a, like a key part of the platform. Um, he asked me to, um, you know, join uh, the the convention to represent basic income, and actually, I also wasn't even um, you know the only one talking about basic income, you know, too as mm -hmm, as part mm -hmm. of it. So that's um, again, like when it comes to third parties, uh, you know, for those who listen to my speech, um, even though I, I of course made basic income a, a central point of it, I also made sure to mention that you know we need things like ranked choice voting. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, in, in, in healthcare, um, but like when I when I talked about um, ranked choice voting, it's because like you can't legitimately have a third party unless you actually have ranked choice voting. So if you're going to create a new party that is the people's party and, you know, even if you are, are you know, the pitch is that it's not going to be a 30 party, that it's going to be like a new major party that's representing like the independents and like the non-voters who are like the largest number of people. And um, regardless of that, you you just have to eliminate the spoiler effect so that that people feel that there's not, you know, this decision between one or the other, you know, lesser evils and this negative partisanship that's the result. So I feel that that for the success of any party like this in order to mm -hmm. actually succeed in their goal of of becoming like a major party, like part of that has to be a pushing for ranked choice voting or, you know, any other kind of system, you know, you could even like say approval voting or star voting or, or whatever, but like they should be keenly interested as a major priority to actually make it realistic to, to in their, in their pushing for like candidates to like become part of the party and like building the support base of people who are actually say going to register for this new party, like, you have to have that parallel movement that's actually pushing for ballot reform so that you are able to be a legitimate choice. Like you have to make it so that people can say, all right, I'm going to vote for the people's party candidate first, right. and then I'm going to vote for uh, green party second, and then I'll vote for Democrats third. Um, you know, I'll vote for libertarians fourth. And, you know, let's say I'm not going to vote for Republican or maybe I will, or, but they're all ranked, you know? Right. Right. Like that's the only way, that's the only realistic way of making it happen. If you don't do that, 
then it's just it's just an impossibility. You can't succeed in making like a new party in the U.S. Even if you have all these independents and stuff, it's just because the people aren't going to vote that way. Like you have to open up that option. So that's why I wanted to make sure in my speech to, to mention to everybody that ranked choice voting has to be part of like the platform too, aside from Medicare for all and universal basic income. Yeah, I think that's really important part of any third party um, that's that wants to come onto the scene. I think that just has to be inherent in their in their platform. Um, I'm curious how your perception of obviously you you've been supporting UBI for years and you think it's absolutely necessary and automation just makes it more necessary. Um, but how has your perception of our need for UBI changed or has it at all? during this whole entire pandemic? Like, for instance, um, what do you think it looks like in terms of amount, how it should be disseminated? Like, has any of that shifted at all from what you've seen during this pandemic? Or is it just validating for what you've already said that we need right now? Uh, yeah, so I would say that, um, you know, I don't, I, I always perceived like a need for disaster resilience as as being like a, like a major reason for basic income. In fact, I was actually writing a new article that was about uh, the importance of, of basic income for disaster resilience. Uh, and I think I started writing in January or February. And because um, at the time it was just like the coronavirus, it was, it was in the news, but it like, you know, it was other, it was overseas. And it was, it was more like kind of what we looked at as far as, uh, say like SARS and MERV and stuff, but like, um, so I was reminded of that and thinking, all right. And so I was writing this article that was framed around Katrina and about like, like these kind of disasters happen and that you have to have this like base of stability, uh, that's there. That's, you know, enables people to, you know, flee disasters areas that are able to, you know, if you're evacuated from your home that you're able to, you know, pay for a hotel or, pay for the gas that gets you somewhere, pays for like food that you didn't have in your budget because usually you would have been like making food at home. Like there, there's so many reasons that that a basic income would help for disasters that, um, you know, that it's just weird that, you know, it became like a massive, massive disaster, like in the process of writing it. So I never even published it because it didn't even, it didn't seem right anymore because I was writing it without really being the perspective of like, the coronavirus being like the center right, of it. Like right. it didn't seem right to have like Katrina being the center of this. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I've always felt that that you need uh, base kingdom as a resilient strategy. And um, as far as like amounts go, I think that uh, like if anything, it's shown that, that as you have this floor, you know, it's part of the importance and value of having that floor is that when necessary that you can, raise it and lower it, you know, depending on, on economic, you know, realities. And so like we would have already had, let's say a thousand dollars a month basic income in March when this all started. Mm -hmm. And um, so suddenly, you know, 30 million people, their jobs are just gone. And now you're, you're, they were at say 2000 or $3,000 a month and now they're down to 1000. And so it's, it's, it's great that they're not down to zero and, and that's really important. Um, but also our, our existing unemployment system is, you know, so piddly that, you know, in a state, let's say you would get $300 a month 
uh, as being unemployed so that you would fall from like $3,000 to 1300 and and now you're there. So you're still like really hurting. And, you know, you, you could be hurting worse. And so, right. you know, at least you can maybe still pay for for food and and, and housing, hopefully. Um, that could be very difficult still, depending on if you have other people in your family that are also receiving, you know, basic income, uh, as well. But in that instance, uh, I imagine it would be, it would have been much easier to, instead of doing the $600 a week, uh, unemployment boost to be like, all right, well, let's just temporarily raise, uh, the basic income from a thousand to 2000. Um, and then that'll be like the emergency lift. Uh, for this. And right. then, you know, when conditions improve, then you can maybe scale it down um, as conditions improve, or maybe you would wait until a certain time and then, you know, make it normal again. But you can have that kind of that buffer, like this kind of area on top. And um, like, even before the the crisis happened, too, I was thinking like a good way of going about basic income would um, uh, would be to have this kind of additional amount on top that was through the Fed. Uh, because I think that the Fed having that capability could, you know, adjust it according to economic conditions mm -hmm. so that, you know, let's say everybody knows that they're getting $1,000 per month of basic income, but then maybe they know or it's unknown if they're going to get an additional $100 or $200 or something, um, you know, depending on um, uh, the unemployment rate and or the inflation rate or, you know, whatever the Fed cares about. And um, so the Fed could be handling this. So imagine how much easier that would have been right? if the Fed had that capability. And so then Congress wouldn't even had to have passed anything. It's just that the crisis would have hit and then bam, instead of the Fed, you know, releasing $3 trillion to banks um, that, that, you know, could have released 600 billion a month um, into everyone's, um, you know, personal Fed accounts or, you know, whatever. Um, as just an, an immediate monetary economic response that Congress didn't have to worry about. So, like, I, I guess it's 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 increased my uh, my thinking as far as the importance of that as being part of like the original plan. Um, even though it was it was part of my plan originally, but it gained importance as far as like that. There's definitely right. an important value in having that kind of buffer kind of situation on top that that we can uh, adjust. That's interesting. That concept. Um, I think maybe Andrew sort Andrew sort of talked about that a little kind of not in not in the way that you did. Um, but uh, but you know it does make me ask the question that everyone always asks. And I am curious about this myself because um, but you know I don't know the reasons why it wouldn't, why we couldn't do this. But first, let me just ask the question because someone wanted me to ask you, when are you going to have your own podcast, Scott? Scott actually does have a podcast and it is on YouTube and it's also on, um, you know, all the podcast platforms. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you can find him. You, I'm sure if you go to his Twitter, you'll find, and also his Patreon is in the link below and his Twitter's in the link below, you'll find his podcast. He has a YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just don't do like this kind of um, like interview kind of situation. I don't have like, um, I don't have a conversational kind of podcast and maybe I'll do like that kind of stuff on occasion. It's just like the way that I go about these things is, is, is what I'm personally interested in. And I like like doing things differently and varying. 
And so, you know, like recently I decided to, to do like my Steve Forbes response video. Yes, and I know. I saw that. That was very cool. Very good. <laughs> well produced Scott, actually. I was like, Oh, <laughs> yeah and so like i just learned that from scratch like i knew nothing about making a video like that i just thought that it would be like important and like fun to do and you know when i say like fun i mean you know it, that's part of like the kind of the even argument for base kingdom itself where you know you are able to you know challenge yourself like it's 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 we all want to be challenged like that's part of what we consider to be fun and you know it's why that we you know do things like play guitar and stuff like you mm -hmm. know at first you just suck at it but you know eventually you you keep playing and you get better and like there's that pleasure in like going oh like I, I'm, I'm getting this and you know before you know it you're a lot better and it's funny like even even when you're better at something you know and people think oh you're just like so good at that and that's amazing and at the same time, you can be thinking, I suck at this, you know, like I still, I'm pissed off that I, you know, I, they did this wrong or whatever. And like, that's just how humans are. So it's, it's, it's also funny from that perspective to think like, oh, you know, people think, oh, if you get a basic income, you're just going to stop working. It's like, you don't want to do anything. And it's like, right. no, that's, that's, yep. not, that's not how we work. Like we actually take enjoyment in challenging ourselves to new things. So of course, if we have like, income to actually enable us to do stuff, then we actually are going to even challenge our stuff to, to more things. So yeah, to get back to like the podcast thing, I just enjoyed doing something different. And, um, I, I think I'll probably do some more like that. Um, but also I, I think I can, you know, it'd be fun to do like in like a kind of interview, um, conversation kind of thing too. And, and just like kind of vary it and do do different things. Yeah, I and, like I like bottles. I think people generally do like bottles um, because it gives context to like the information that they're consuming. So I, I like that format actually. Um, so also Nell, thank you Nell. Um, but the question that I was going to ask you actually was it literally, literally like actually just what you were talking about is why can't we just do like, so some people are like, well, then why don't we give everyone a million dollars a month, which is really ridiculous. But why can't we do something like 1500 or $2,000 a month so that, you know, uh, like something hits. And then I, I'm just wondering if there's a specific reason why we can't do like $2,000 a month. Oh, there's, like, there's no reason at all that. why we, okay. we cause I didn't think like, there was a, re a, a reason against yeah. it, but no. So like, it's an interesting conversation to, to have to even think about, okay, so what is the, like, what is the maximum amount of, of UBI yeah. that we could do? And like, there, there's also no clear answer to that question because mm -hmm. what you mean by like kind of optimum basic income, you know, you're going to have winners and losers. And, you know, let's say what's optimum for say the bottom 40 or 50% may not be optimum for like the top 10%. And, you know, so there's that 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 friction between the two, and there's you know just political realities, and um, you know so even so again, let's take inflation for example, because it's just it's just really interesting to even you know think about this. Where why is it that everyone is so afraid of inflation? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it, it's I think it's actually really weird that it, and it's actually kind of more of an American response. Like it's actually talking to international UBI advocates, they're kind of like, why is it that everyone in America always like the first response is inflation? 
Like it's not like a, it's not really a response elsewhere in the world like it is here. Mm -hmm. So there's like there's something going on here mm. that Americans have become fearful of inflation. And that's interesting because what what who is affected by inflation? Right. Like who's, it, who's it good for? The people so, who have a lot of money, all of a sudden they're, they're worried that their money doesn't mean anything anymore. So are you basically saying it's a scarcity mindset that is created because we don't have enough or because we've created the scarcity type of economy, like the have and have nots? Yeah, no, I, I, I really, I, I think that we feel about inflation the way we feel about inflation because if you have a lot of wealth and if you're doing the ones lending the money, then it is in your best interest to not have inflation mm -hmm. because uh, as, as like Ron Paul likes to say, inflation is a hidden tax. And so let's say we had like a 10% inflation rate and let's say, you know, let's say it was a, 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 um, a solid steady 10% inflation rate. Like, like that's really, that's high inflation. And it's something that central banks would want to bring down. And so let's say we're at 10%. Well, then you, that's kind of like a 10% wealth tax. Like it, it, it makes your money worth less. Right. And so if you have, you know, a billion dollars, then suddenly you have like 10% less buying power with right. your billion dollars. So it's effectively like you lost a hundred million dollars, which is, that's a hefty kind of tax. And then if you look at, you know, who benefits from inflation, well, let's say, you know, you take out a loan uh, for your house. And so let's say it's, uh, you know, $300,000 loan for your house over like 40 years or something. And so if you have like a 10% inflation rate, then the amount of money that you end up paying back after that time yeah. is not $300,000. You actually end up paying, you know, let's say 150,000, 200,000 or, or whatever that number ends up being um, when it's over that amount of time over the time of the loan. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really good for borrowers to have this inflation rate, which is also why the central banks like to have like this 2% inflation rate as something because it's actually good to incentivize like people taking out loans and stuff. Um, but those who, who, who have those loans paid back, they don't want that inflation because it means less money for them. Right. And so I think there's been like a, a situation where we believe what we believe about inflation because the people up at the top want us to believe that it's in their interests. And so there's been like a, a kind of campaign that's been going on so that we do fear about it. And it, it, it's, it's. It's true that inflation, you know, would hurt everybody in a non-UBI scenario. The same right. thing with like a, with the same thing with value-added tax. Like, so if you just imagine a VAT and it's ten percent across the board, obviously that's going to be hurting people who have the least money because if all you have is you know ten dollars and now it's it's worth ten percent less, then you know that's that's a big deal to you. That's 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 a major regressive hit. Yeah. But if you have a UBI that's that's the result of the VAT, and it's you know you're getting a lot more money than you're paying in, then of course you're a net beneficiary. And so it's the same kind of situation with an inflation rate. So if you have like a higher inflation rate, but it's paired with a UBI, then 
it will be a net benefit to those at the bottom and the middle, and it would be a, a net loss to those at the top. So that's why I ask too, like, what do we mean by optimal as far as like maximum basic income? Right. You could actually have a higher basic income that could be, you know, what people to be like unrealistically high. And the result of that would be a high inflation rate. And as long as the inflation rate, you know, isn't, you know, like a snowballing effect because, you know, things have gotten crazy and it just gets higher and higher and higher. And, you know, that's like kind of hyperinflation stuff. But if it's just like considered to be like a higher rate of inflation that people don't like, then I don't see any reason why you couldn't actually be okay with that. Yeah. As long as people are understanding that they are net beneficiaries of it. So it's all really the politics behind it as to what's okay and what's not okay. Yeah, no, and that's really interesting that in America, it, inflation is like really huge. Um, it says a lot of our culture and everything like that. Um, and it does also, because I, I, I like, so I imagine a story where everyone has, you know, what they need and everyone gets to live comfortably and everything like that. And we can do that. Like with what we have in this country, we can actually make that happen. We just are not making that happen. And so then it begs this question, this philosophical kind of question, I guess, where it's like, do rich people, like, do they just no longer feel like, like, are they validated in their wealth? because other people are not wealthy. Like, why does it, like, does it make them feel like lesser than if other people are also doing well while they're doing well? You know, um, I think we might have yeah. a little bit of an interesting, strange situation there. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I wonder if that plays into it. Yeah, there's, there's certainly, uh, you know, as humans, we, we think like via hierarchies and like hierarchy isn't, like important to us, like, and this is, there's physiological reasons too, why like hierarchy is kind of important to us where, you know, as far as like this pecking order that develops and, and like the pecking order can develop, um, a lot because of like this kind of stress response where, you know, if you, uh, as they, as, as like the saying goes, shit rolls downhill. And so like, if someone above you shits on you, then you know your response is to like shit on someone else and if you do that then you can actually alleviate your stress because it puts you in a position of like control mm -hmm. and that's what a lot of this is about is mm -hmm. like um, when it comes to human like yeah. physiology is like this lack of or or, or having control yeah. because if you have control then you're more secure there's mm -hmm. less stress and that's just we we work better that way it's kind of like scarcity and abundance kind of mentality stuff too. Um, so when it comes to hierarchy, that is important, but also all that it matters is, is the, is the actual stacking. And what I mean by that is, is there's no reason, like if you're above someone, like you don't need to be, you know, like, like this high above someone, like right. as long as you're like this high above someone, right. then, you know, it's the same thing or this high, it's the same thing because you're still above them. It, it's 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 the making of, of of equality that can be so problematic to to people in in, in general. So like when you even look at like um, you know indexes of inequality or like the Gini index, um, you know there's there's kind of maximum inequality uh, as far as like what's maximum as far as like um, not maximum as like measured, but maximum as far as like before things start getting really bad for everyone because inequality has gotten too high 
And then there's inequality that's like too low where that starts to cause problems um, because people don't feel like, you know, doing the extra work or, or doing right. this or that actually right. leads right. them to like raise in the hierarchy. Right. And so, you know, there is like this kind of like sweet spot zone of inequality Interesting. where, where you want to aim for. And so that even goes to like we were previously talking about with this maximum UBI kind of notion is, is if you actually, uh, you can, you can have a high enough UBI that decreases inequality enough so that you're in that zone and you don't want to go too far beyond that. Like you, you, it is possible to have so high of a UBI that inequality is low enough that now you've actually messed with like incentives and Mm -hmm. because of this hierarchical need, whatever. So we, we are at the huge extreme as far as like inequality. And we have a lot of room to reduce the inequality to actual like sane levels um, that like you see like in Nordic countries and, and stuff where we know that that works far better for society to to be more equal, but you know at the same time not being too equal that you have issues and, and also not having like tax rates that are so high yeah. that you're actually withholding or, or pushing down like innovation things. Right. No, that, that whole, I, that whole concept is really fascinating. Um, you know, speaks to human nature and all of that. Uh, I, and you know, I don't exactly know what the answer to that is. I don't think anyone necessarily knows exactly what that is, but I do know that there are some people in the Netherlands, um, who I spoke to who did feel like there was a cap on how well they could do that. It didn't matter. Like they had reached, I guess that, you know, it's almost too equal some respects because they can't actually go any higher above what they've already achieved, even though they work so hard and, you know, and and, and they work so hard and they continue to do so. Like every time they go up, they keep on getting ratcheted right back down. Um, So yeah, but I mean, but that's a totally different also tax system as well. It's they're not talking. And then that's why they support universal basic income because they didn't like that tax structure. Um, So I don't know what your thoughts are. I don't know how much you've kept up with this. But Steve actually wants me to ask you about your thoughts on Unity 2020. If you know anything about it, um, uh, do you know anything about Unity 2020, the Unity 2020 ticket, getting a Republican and a Democrat together on one single ticket and, you know, basically another third party's kind of situation? Yeah. So it's basically, I would say kind of a very similar thing that we were talking about as far as the movement for a people's party, where, you know, and I would stress too, that the movement for a people's party is, is talking about 2022. Like they're not talking about 2020. They're not on any tickets and, you know, they're even encouraging people to vote for Biden. Um, I think for, you know, most people in the party, uh, it's not like they have a specific you know thing, but I think a lot of people who are, who are interested in that, are, are, are more progressive and, you know, they're saying that Democrats aren't responding to them and, you know, they're, they're going outside that to start like a new party. And, um, but they're not pushing for now. Uh, and, and when it comes to unity 2020, like that's talking about now. And again, I just, I don't think it's realistic. Like I, I, I think that it's it, like, I, I'm interested in the idea. Um, and I, I would love to have like this ticket where, you have a, a Republican and a, and a Democrat, and you know a, I think it's a really interesting idea to 
think about going outside this like typical system and having like a, you know, kind of a co-presidency where, you know, that there's that equivalence between both people um, where it's not even like a, a, a president VP, but like a, a co-presidency kind of thing. Right. Right. Like, yeah. I, I think that's interesting. Um, and like, I mean, I love any kind of unity, you know, messaging and, and, and pushing to be like, hey, we're on the same side. Let's actually fix the real problems instead of like fighting each other. Um, so like, I like the ideas and and the concept behind it. But realistically, I just don't think that there's any possible way that 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 could possibly win. And it it's even one of those things too, where maybe if it had started earlier, like if it had been conceived of earlier and had made it to the point where, you know, you actually could like actually be on the ballot in all 50 states where people actually had that option, then it would be more possible. But I still think that you just would have ended up being a spoiler in some way. And I don't know who it would have spoiled, but I am, and I do think it would be a situation where, you know, we would have a president who'd be winning and then you're, you're facing the same issue that ranked choice voting wants to alleviate, which is, you know, the the lack of like of 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 like buy-in or power uh of um that someone wins if they win with say 40 percent of the vote you know mm -hmm. so it, there there's something there like it's important to have uh majority wins um because at least you feel that hey 51 percent of the population supports this person 49 percent supports the other person so 51 percent that's you know, where people agree. But so if you have like this, this third party in there that pulls away, then it, it's even not so much the fact that you've spoiled one or the other, although that's certainly important, but it's also the fact that now you have like a, 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 a plurality winner who's winning with, you know, maybe 35% or, or maybe less than that. And then it's like, what kind of weight do you have behind that presidency? Right. Right. when you've just won with a a plurality instead of a majority yeah. so like we're already facing a situation where mm -hmm. it's going to be it's going to be bad as far as even if someone wins with a majority it's like you know there's going to be people fighting against it and and whatever and so like you know the the best possible circumstances um i don't know if you did you happen to look into this uh that was just published recently it was like a a big scenario planning thing where they looked at what's uh the possibilities as to what happens on election day and you know leading up to inauguration and like all these possible scenarios that could happen um based on like decisions that are made and based on like um you know the wins in various states and and stuff did you happen to see that no that sounds really potentially scary or fascinating though um yeah so go to my twitter feed and you can find I, I i tweeted about that um uh today but uh, basically, like the best possible scenario where where we actually have like a functioning government in and in where uh, Trump is is less able to actually, you know, insist that he stays and, and this kind of thing is if there's a large enough win. And so, you know, if if Biden has like, you know, 70 percent of the vote, you know, something like, you know, really big, then it's clear like to everybody that he won. It's not like you you can't fake that many votes. You can't like, you know, there's just no way that people would believe that 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 that's like, you know, was invented right. or something. Right. I mean, I'm sure some still would because there's always going to be some people. But like 
overall, as far as like a functioning government goes, um, that would have the fewest problems because enough people voted. So again, if you look at like the unity kind of ticket, it would take away from that because it's taking some portion of that down. And we basically, it, we need to have as high above 50% as possible and the higher, the better um, to, for like a functioning, um, uh, you know, Agreed upon outcome yeah, yeah. <laughs> or some sort of consensus on the outcome. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree that right now it's, it seems very, it's very implausible. Um, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to build in a fail safe where if they don't get the number of votes to win, they would just back off at a certain point and let people vote for whomever they were going to vote for. But um, that's another whole other topic to get into. But Steve just wanted me to ask you that. Um, Kane Ra, big fan of yours. Um, he says, keep on fighting, Scott. Influence is still growing. Think of it as a video game. Um, influence to take over territory, China style. What is that? Okay. Yang and Scott are the best. And thank you for the hard work from Norway. He says, um, very appreciative of all your work. Sorry, guys. I am... Um, Someone says, love you, Scott and Paget. Sorry, I'm really behind on these comments. Um, hold on, let me just... Uh, oh, Miles says he wants you on more often. Hi, Miles. Uh, <laughs> let me see. Uh, yes, we need more innovation here in Norway, says Kane. Okay, in regards to what we were talking about before. Um Okay, so Steve wants to know Unity twenty twenty four. Anyway, we're not going to get into that, but um, okay. Angie just says uh, even if a third party candidate got on all fifty state ballots, third party candidates are not allowed to debate on national televised stages. I do, I right, like I agree with you there um, that they're not allowed to be a part of the debates. Although apparently debates don't really matter too much on how people <laughs> vote, you know. But that's of, of course yeah. in the duopoly. Right. So yeah. as long as people are on the stage, you know, but it doesn't really seem to matter much, which I guess could work in Biden's favor or either one of their favor. I don't know. However, you yeah. want to look at it. <laughs> um, and that's a good point to raise, too, just uh, as we're talking about important reforms, like um, it's not only about like government reforms and like voting reforms, state reforms. It's stuff like this where, you know, there should not be only, you know, two party control of the debates. Like that's one of these things where it's not like it's a government decided thing. That's like actually basically two businesses, the Republican uh, committee and the democratic committee, like co-producing this show yeah. and deciding that it's only them and controlling what the questions are and, and all this stuff. Um, like that's a problem in itself. And it's, it's, it's not something that, um, you know, it's not like a law that can be passed or really to, it's about saying, look, this needs to change. We have to actually, like, we, we can't accept that anymore. We, we, we want actual more voices and we want like third party actually, or I guess I wouldn't say third party, but you know, um, um, like it used to be run by, um, the, um, 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 the women's league of voters and like, that was how each debate was done for a while. And um, then like the parties got involved in, in change things up and, and the league of women's over just like, like, no, we we're out of this. You can't do this anymore. Um, this is like a sham. Um, so that's what we have to go back to is we need this, this outside organization. That's not the RNC and the DNC that's running this as a yeah. neutral organization. And then you can have these other parties, 
uh, be part of this to actually have an actual debate instead of these kind of sham uh, reality shows. Scott, I actually have a question not having to do with UBI, but just to, like getting involved in politics like this time around. Have you has has it bothered you um, as much as it bothers me right now in seeing how this whole thing works, where these you know networks that are funded by campaign money for specific candidates actually hold these debates. They're the ones where you know they're disseminating all the information about the candidates and everything like that. How incredibly screwed up that whole system is between the media, mainstream media, and um, campaigns and that whole thing and debates and all of it. Like, has that always bothered you, or is that something that um, you know? is just more apparent this time around for some reason. Um, I mean, it's, it's bothered me for as long as I guess I've been interested enough to, to really care about politics and, and like the way this stuff works. So like, I didn't even remember when I kind of got more deeply into it, maybe like around, um, 2000, like six or 2007, something like that, maybe, um, I got more into this and started looking into this kind of thing. In fact, I, I got more into it too. I really loved watching um, Bill Moyers and uh, I, I still miss him. Like his show on uh, PBS is like so good. Um, the, uh, he would sit down with, with guests and, and have like real substantive conversations like we're having right now. And it would, you know, it's televised and it, it was just such like a, he was so smart and he, he prepared so well and he asked such good questions. He answered such great guests. And uh, I just learned a lot um, from, from watching it on a, on a weekly basis. And I always looked forward to it and, you know, he, he's retired. So he's not, you know, the show's unavailable anymore. But um, I, I thought that, that the loss of that show was like kind of like a loss to an informed democracy. Uh, mm -hmm. Cause we just, we need, more of that, we really severely are are, are lacking in it. Um, so yeah, when it comes to it comes to like the media and stuff and their influence, um, you know, I if you look at like it was something that I, I kept track of during Yang's candidacy, yeah. where you know as far as like media yeah. mentions go, and so you know the person with the most media mentions from the beginning and through the whole thing was Biden, and so you know here we are and we're we're voting for Biden against Trump. And would that have been the case if if the media would have maybe treated each candidate uh, equally? You know, like there, it's impossible to say he, he could be still the candidate or maybe it would have been someone else. Like maybe it would have been Bernie right now. I don't know. Maybe it would have been um, um, Buttigieg or something like I, I don't know um, how different it would be. But I do know that there was influence that was utilized and it was certainly helped him. It didn't, it didn't hurt him to have this, this massive coverage, just like, you know, Trump and himself, like he got this massive amount of free coverage the first time around that helped him win. And now this time too, it's like all we're ever talking about is Trump. He just gets constant free coverage and that's just benefit to him. Uh, someone commented, Padgett, I would love for Scott to tell you the story about zombies in public domain. I have no idea what this person is referring to. You will love this. <laughs> do, you, do you have any idea what, what John yeah. is referring to? Yeah, yeah. I have an article um, about the uh, uh, like zombification of um, uh, IP law. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's centered around the fact that um, uh, 
uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, was originally copyrighted, um, but then like in like the edit, they uh, the way copyright worked was that you had to have like the copyright on like the title card, and then they 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 like changed the name, um, and then they forgot to put that 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 copyright symbol like back in it, and so then they they aired it and like. The law says on first air you have to have that copyright on the copyright card in order to be copyrighted, and it didn't do that, and so it became a public domain movie. This this work of art that was public domain, and because it was public domain, you were able. All these television stations were able to air this this movie because they didn't have to pay for it, and so that's why like this movie became like such a classic. And it, because it it had that ability to be played freely everywhere, and you know that's how like the whole zombie genre was born off of this because you could have movies based on the zombie movie, and because zombies weren't like copyrighted, you know you could you could have this movie about zombies and build off of that, and so you're really able to to build this incredible you know richness of 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 movies and everything and stories um, from this because it was in the public domain. And um, so I just think that that's in that it's a, it, it, it shows just how like important, like mixing and, and remixing um, is and how like we, we build off of um, what the previous person has made that you know, so much creativity is 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 intermixing of of what all of us are are doing, and you know when you have like um, you know uh, intellectual property laws and stuff, then you can limit that because you're 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 pulling stuff out um, instead of in, enriching this you know um, shared kind of medium of ideas to to build off of, and so like I tie it to basic income. Uh, because I think that that a lot of the reason why the copyright laws and trademarks and, and patents and stuff exist as it is, is because we need money to live. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you want to make sure that if you write a book, you know, whatever, that if you, if you create like a movie or something, then you want to have these, these passive income, you know, residuals for, you know, your life, uh, because you don't know how, you know, what's going to happen. Right. You want to make sure that you have that income stability. And then companies like Disney have have taken advantage of that. And so, you know, they they come in and they're like, hey, let's extend the copyright law. And, you know, so what started out back in the day as as being like 15 years um, has, you know, extended to beyond um, someone's actual life and, you know, way beyond that. And, um, you know, I don't think that's good for, um, uh, you know, society to right. to to have these limits imposed so um instead of like being able to have this rich uh, public domain and so i think that that we're not going to be able to reform ip law until we actually have a ubi um and then once we have that then i think people would be you know less inclined to demand 150 years worth of protection you know for their work and they'd also be more likely to just say hey I'll just publish this directly into the public domain or I'll, I'll, I'll use like the, the, the commons and, and put it in there and instead. And if we did that, 
then you know we I think we'd have a much more creative um, society as far as you know all these these intermixing of ideas. And so actually built off that, I, I think a really interesting way of of kind of building towards that would be to treat uh, intellectual property um, like like greenhouse gases, as in you know let's let's tax it or or, or add a fee to it so that it, it gets more expensive over time to actually exclude something from the public domain. And then that money would actually build into a pot that would, that would add to, you know, the UBI uh, so that it's kind of, it, you win, it's like a win-win situation. So, you know, if like your Disney pays, you know, a billion dollars or whatever to keep Mickey Mouse out of the public domain, then okay, they get to keep Mickey for right, another year, right. but also we all get paid from it. Um, and then if they finally refuse to pay instead of, you know, we don't get that money, but then we do get that property into the public mm -hmm. domain, which we can now use. So it's win-win for us. And um, yeah, I don't think there's like, I think that's one way of building the incentives that we do actually make like intellectual property work for all of us. So interesting how that scarcity mindset, it just applies across the board for everything. Um, and then like, I, I would just be so curious to see what all the other effects um, UBI would have just on even just the way people do business and the way CEOs like, you know, treat their employees, like mm -hmm. all or the range of effects that it would have on like working conditions and all sorts of things. Um, yeah. Kane, Kane, Actually, sorry. Kane just came back and he wants to ask you okay. a question. Okay, is Scott having a current UBI role um, or a humanity forward role or something in the near potential future? He wants to know what you are up to right now or in the near future so he knows where to find you in your work. Well, I, I, I don't know how to answer the question about a current UBI role uh, because I mean, I, <laughs> I definitely have a UBI role. Um, uh, as far as humanity forward, um, like I don't, I don't, see myself like getting like a job or something with humanity forward. Um, but I certainly am, you know, working with humanity forward, um, uh, behind the scenes. And, and so I'll continue, you know, doing that. And, you know, I'm excited to, to help where I can. All right. Um, there you have it, Kane. Um, I mean, Scott is constantly doing things to push universal basic income. He is the UBI expert. Um, so, you know, I think he already has a permanent role in that regard. Um, let me see. Okay, strange question, but Nell wants to know, what do you think about creating a UBI from the use of legalized weed once it's legalized nationally? I mean, that would be, that would be VAT. Oh, no, it, it would be, it'd be different. Um, oh, I mean, okay. you, you could, because a VAT is, is something that's applied to everything in, you know, um, uh, let's say a tax on weed or, or like a kind of fee or something on that would, would be only for that. It was more like an excise tax. And you absolutely can use various excise taxes, um, especially at the state level to, to fund this. And um, like nationally, we certainly could do that. But I think more realistically, it's something that, that states are going to do. And, um, you know, just like alcohol is regulated at the state level, you know, weeds regulated at the state level, um, at the fed level, it's just a matter of, of, you know, removing it from the, its classification as a, you know, class one, um, that's, you know, uh, but at the, at the state level, um, actually there's multiple states that are, that are looking at this. And I actually, uh, testified, 
um, before the, um, the committee for a bill in, um, uh, I think it was, um, I think it was Maine or, or maybe it was Massachusetts. Um, cause I, I've done it for two different states and both states are, um, are going down this route of thinking, all right, how can we do like an Alaska style dividend? Mm-hmm. Um, what if we used like marijuana revenue to, um, to put into that fund to, you know, make that possible. And, you know, I think that's a great idea. I, I think that we should also combine that with other stuff. So I think every state should follow Alaska's lead and have a permanent fund. And I think each state should have like, you know, different ways or revenue sources of, of putting into it. So, you know, you could have like excise taxes on, mm-hmm. on cigarettes. You could have you know, right. your, your fee right. from marijuana. You could, do alcohol, um, you could do um, uh, like water, water is free when, you know, so then you have like Nestle, like sucking up like millions of gallons of of water for free. Um, And, you know, they should be paying, let's say a penny a gallon or something, you know, like you you can put a price on these things that actually go into this pool. And I think, you know, people would be more likely to support these kinds of initiatives, as long as they're getting some money, you know, out of it in return. So actually, that actually brings me to a question that I had for you, just a general question with BAT and UBI and everything like that. Like, Mm -hmm. so if you kind of follow the logic of the modern monetary theory, then in theory, you wouldn't really need necessarily to have a VAT um, in order to support UBI. So in a perfect world where you don't have politics and everything like that would you support not necessarily having to have a VAT or do you think that it is really um crucial in order to balance like some of the economics you know with the wealthier people spending more um yeah like where do you yeah so like i think there's confusion with with mmt so just to to cover that just a little bit quickly please Um, someone else told me but yeah so MMT is modern monetary theory and um, just like a really kind of simple way of, of thinking about it is that kind of the origin of money is not taxes. And so the current paradigm is thinking, all right, the government taxes people, then the government has money, and then the government distributes that taxed money to various things. So the government is restricted by by how much taxes it, it collects in order to spend that money on various things. And MMT says, no, the origin of money is government. And so the, the money is created and put out by government. And then taxation actually just eliminates that money. It like kind of, you know, just erases it out of existence when you tax. So it's like not like this closed loop that begins with the, with the taxpayer. It's actually a kind of, kind of maybe like a horseshoe or something kind of situation, where it, it's it's birthed in government and then it ends with taxes, and so, I think it's it's interesting to think about it that way because then you're not really restricting yourself um, by the tax revenue you can raise. You're saying, right. look, what is it that we want to do, and so let's put that revenue towards these things. And then, but that doesn't mean that there's no taxes. It just, it, you still require taxes in order to, um, you know, adjust, 
uh, the inflation rate. Because if, if you don't have that, you will have inflation. Mm-hmm. And so it, then again, that goes to the conversation of, of, you know, do we want inflation or don't we and how much and, and whatever. But like based right. on like current thinking, what you don't want to do is go above 2% um, right. annual inflation. Right. And so you would, the government would spend what it would want on what it feels is important based on what people think is important. So, you know, let's say UBI, healthcare, um, you know, college and, and whatever else that we do, um, you know, military, just everything that we spend money on that we feel democratically that we should be spending money on. Then um, taxes come in and say, all right, where do we want to eliminate money so that we aren't inflating the money supply? And so, you know, then you would have, maybe you would do a VAT. Again, you, you could still do that. Or maybe you want to eliminate money from, you know, as a wealth tax. Maybe you want to eliminate money based on like progressive income taxes. Like all that is still required. It's just you're doing it because you're wanting to remove inflation that you consider right. to be too high. Interesting. And okay. so it's interesting to see like, um, and uh, and there's a selling point to it. Like the, the reason people are kind of not understanding how MMT works is it's cause it's kind of um, a way of, of selling um, from the progressives saying like, look, we don't have to worry about all this stuff. We can just do these things. And you know, it's true, but there's, they're leaving out and they're purposely leaving out the fact that you still require these taxes. It's just their, they're stressing that it's not as important as we think right. it is because it's on the backside of things instead of the primary first part of things. Right. Okay. So it's, it's almost, even though it's not that simple, but it's a simplified way to um, reassure people that we can do things like Medicare for all and, and these other things, initiatives without needing with, and being able to print the money in order to do it. And it won't lead to inflation and yada, yada. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just a we're it's okay. it's our decision to do. We can do that, right. and then taxes are just devised to make sure that inflation stays at, at what it is. And same with interest rates too. You know, interest rates and taxes are both ways of, of handling inflation. Okay. Um, couple more questions. Uh, you're very popular, Scott. Um, people want to ask you a lot of questions. Um, do you know any leaders in the time banking movement? I think popularizing time banking can persuade people to do more work for the public. Oh, t- okay. Mm-hmm. Can you explain this and talk about this a little bit? Yeah, um, I've spoken to to some people, and I, I, again, I, I don't remember like which organizations we were with. And um, like, I think um, you know, I've met someone who was part of like a like a, a non crypto organization, and I've also met those who had like a crypto kind of approach to time banking, um, but. Like I, I, you know, I like the idea, and in, in uh, I think that uh, again, once you have UBI and you enable people to engage in non-monetary ways with each other, then it really opens up this kind of new system that's that's more difficult right now because, like, you know, like if you if you just do time banking right now, whereas uh, you know, for those who don't know how time banking works, let's say you um, pledge to do like. 10 hours worth of work and you, you do it across like four people and multiple projects. Like maybe you, you cook them dinner or maybe you like build a shed in their yard or mow their lawn or whatever, but it's based on time. So you put in 10 hours of your work and then now you have like 10 hours that you can receive from others. And so then like you, let's say you want your house cleaned 
and that's going to take two hours from someone in the time banking um, community. And so you can like cash in that two hours and then they'll come in and like clean your house. So there's no money that's exchanged. It's just these kind of these, these time, um, you know, I don't know what to call them like credits, maybe like these, these time credits where, and it's purely based on time. Uh, it, so it's, it's, it's not like, like, um, you know, it's not like he would say, well, I, I welded this, you know, car or something. And because it's, it's very skilled and complicated, then even though it took me two hours, I'm going to charge right. you 10 hours. Like, it's not right. like that. It's, it's purely time. Um, so like right now in order to, you know, we all need to eat and, and have our basic needs met. And so, you know, you would have to know people in the time community who are like, you know, meeting those basics as far as like, you know, farmers and, and restaurants and all these things. And if it was like big enough, it's, it's potentially plausible, but for the most part, you, you, it doesn't exist. Like you, you don't, you don't, you're not going to find that enough people outside of this system to, to do that. Um, right. But then once you have UBI and you don't, you know, you have that money that you can do for these, spend for these basics, then all of a sudden it's much more possible to engage in the system where you're like, all right, well, I'm going to spend a couple hours volunteering for other people. And then because of that, you know, I can benefit from this occasionally, you know, when I need it. And, you know, then it's, it becomes much more, um, much more interesting and plausible with UBI. Yeah, exactly. I don't think enough people can afford to time bank at this moment in time um, because they need to spend that time trying to make money and take care of their basic bills. Um, okay, Kane, I don't know if you know Kane personally, but uh, he really likes to ask you questions. <laughs> um, so how would you, um, from your perspective, describe our Norwegian economy? I don't know how familiar you are, Scott. Um, we kept a foundation from socialism from the 70s, which helps us all. Um, but we slap 90% more capitalist policies on top of that. I'm not sure how incredibly familiar you are, Scott, with the whole tax structure. So, and if you have- yeah. Like I would, I, I'm really not familiar with, with like specific details, but I, I would just say, you know, like Norway is a great example of a sovereign wealth fund. And, you know, that's what they're kind of best known for. Um, like their, their fund is now, um, it's over $1 trillion. Uh, I don't know what it is right now, um, uh, what it's grown to, especially, you know, pandemic-wise, um, as far as, like, you know, there seems to be these kind of funds that are doing fine. <laughs> um, but as far as, like, it, it's interesting how, you know, they have a country where, you know, each person is has effectively a share that's, you know, very large, you know, I, I haven't made that, that calculation recently, but I think it's somewhere like around six figures as far as, you know, what their, um, uh, their share of like that fund goes, if they were to like cash it out, you know? Um, but, uh, like, I, I, I think that's so important that, that countries recognize that when it comes to like these natural resources, especially those, you know, they're non-renewable, like, like oil, um, that that you convert it from a non-renewable resource to this renewable resource and that was the entire purpose of the alaska permanent fund too and it was you know even based on you know looking at at at, at norway um as far as like a, a model i believe um and it's um 
I think it's just really it's it's a successful way of going about it, and I like the precedent that it sets that uh, you know people are co-owners. Um, the I, I will also say that, like as far as like conversations go, where who will be the first country to mm, implement yeah. basic income? Yeah, that's um, a question, people yeah. say and there's a like there's there's some that will argue that well, when you look at the Nordic nations, if you look at you know Norway, Finland, um, Sweden, uh, Denmark, like these countries are are more likely to adopt it because like they're so close. Like right. they, they've got like really strong safety nets and and because they're so close that it really wouldn't take that much in order to go that final step and actually like remove the conditions and universalize and you've got yourself a basic income. Um, I'm actually thinking in the other side of things where, and, and this is because um, when I was, when I've gone there, um, you know, I've been to to Sweden and Norway uh, to give talks. And when I was there, uh, I'm approached by people and they're like, can be very um, critical of UBI and thinking like, oh, you know, we actually don't need that here. You know, we, we have a strong safety net. Um, we're fine. Like you're talking about that over here because like you have such a bad safety net. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we'll just be fine with automation and all those stuff. Like we don't need it. And so it, I think it's, I think it's, it's kind of like this, um, and I wouldn't say it's paradoxical, but it's it's uh, possibly it's frustrating that that maybe as you get closer to um, having UBI at least as far as a strong safety net goes, then you're maybe less open to it, um, and, and you're just kind of like stuck in this kind of conditional means tested um, paradigm um, that's possibly harder to escape from. Like, I don't think it'll actually be one of those Nordic nations to be the first. I am, I think it'll be a different country first. And it'll be like Africa, somewhere in Africa. I, I know that there was a country in Africa who was, that was really going to be implementing it at some point soon. Well, yeah, so South Africa has shown a lot of interest in it recently. Um, they were talking about, you know, an emergency based income and, um, they stepped away from that or stepped back from it, but there's still a lot of interest there uh, for that. And um, like Brazil, it, again, uh, right. Brazil actually already passed it into law in 2004. Like they have a basic income as law in the books. It's just up to the president to actually execute. And no president has done it so far. So that's that's always been a potential. And now here we are, in the coronavirus crisis and and they've actually been doing these payments and they've been very successful and mm -hmm. it's reduced poverty inequality and popularity of the president and so it it's possible that the president could actually look at that and go well let's just do it because it's increasing my popularity and it's up to me to do it like i don't even have to have a law passed i don't i all all, all bolsonaro has to do is just decide to do it and it'll just and it'll happen. Um, you know, the question is how to go about doing it. Um, but it's just, it's entirely up to him. And so it, it could be um, a real, a realistic possibility in Brazil to be first as well. Um, um, you think I think we could be first or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I think that, I think the earliest we could do it is, is, um, um, late 2021, early 2022. Um, you know, that's like, again, low odds of that happening. Right. But I, I think that there is that potential. Um, 
in that date. So it, I think it's more likely that there will be some other country prior to late 2021 that is the first to to do this um, based on, you know, what happens as repercussions of this, you know, long recession and economic downturn in these countries. Um, John Crow, I don't, I don't understand this. I hope you do. Um, he wants to know what your thoughts are on using local maker spaces as a way mm-hmm. to educate and train people for jobs. I am really behind. I have no idea what this question is exactly referring to. Do you? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it comes to makerspaces, like 3D printers are like a big part of, of makerspaces where, okay. you know, you're um, like, there's there's a bunch of like tools available in this space where people can go to and utilize that. And so, you know, you can you can learn how to use 3D printing, you can create designs and, and manufacture things and then, you know, sell those things in a way that that you couldn't otherwise do, you know, without like having the capital to like buy a 3D printer and start like, you know, a business doing that. Okay. Um, so like it's really helpful as far as as, you know, being um, kind of like. I don't know, like a like a manufacturing library kind of thing, where you know instead of going in to check out books, you're like utilizing the space to actually um, create, create and produce in a way that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, so yeah, I I think they're I think they're great. Um, always when it comes to to job training, you know, I'm I'm always I'm always hesitant to to push that as any kind of solution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where where. Like, yeah, it's it's great to be able to, just like with libraries, it's great to actually have a space where people can, you know, increase their knowledge and, and learn more. Um, but what you can't do is say, you know, just because that there is a library that people can, you know, self-educate right. themselves and, and be just fine. Um, so, like, same thing with with any kind of job training stuff. It's like, great, let's, let's have those options available. And I think for people who can utilize that and want to utilize that, it's really helpful. Um, but what you can't do is say like, all right, well, let's have like a, a giant collection of these all over and then um, expect that to to kind of fix these systemic um, issues that like, you know, is required by um, the UBI needs to to happen to fix. Yeah. Um, and actually, Kane come back, came back again to in response to your response. And he says is actually that they're fighting against automation very hard. Sweden is testing remotely driven trucks. I think we're trying to avoid UBI topic. The left fight for it still. So interesting about automation, how they're yeah. trying to, I, I like they, didn't they take away certain kinds of comp, like they banned certain kinds of companies um, because it's taking away jobs from people. Obviously you're against all of that kind of thing, right? Like you don't think that's the way to go at all. Yeah, yeah. That's also that speaks to the power of the labor movement in these countries too. So, um, like, you can have a country with a strong labor movement, and because they have a strong labor movement, that say they have like a strong safety net because those things are like tied together. And let's say you're you have like lower inequality, and like it's working, the country's working better for the every you know citizen who's there um, because they have these strong unions. But at the same time, strong unions mean that you are pushing against this stuff. Like that's just, you know, it, it's there's a um, there's a graph that I put in, in one of my articles before that actually looked at um, the 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 difference as far as like um, favoring automation versus um, you know unions and versus um, like um, you know people in like the tech mm-hmm. sector. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and you know unions are 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 for the most part like against automation because you're automating jobs and and when you do that it's like they they could look at it as in like okay we're increasing productivity and then because we're increasing productivity then as a union then we're going to spread that throughout the union and like either increase incomes or or reduce the time uh, by shortening like the work week you know for that um union oh, yeah yeah like that's one way to go about it but it it doesn't usually it work that way like unfortunately unions for the most part seem to to want to to maintain these these human positions uh, no matter what they are in fact in that the article that I wrote about that there was um, uh, an example when it came to trains and so uh, an example of automation was that they um, there, there used to be the coal shoveler person so like their job was to keep the the coal going in these trains and then they switched from coal to diesel and then so you eliminated that job right and then there was so that's a form of they automated that job away there was no longer necessary the technology had advanced enough so it was gone but then the unions fought that that person still stayed there and so the job that this person was like they had a title but they didn't actually, you know, do anything. They were entirely unnecessary. Now it's almost like when we, um, how we used to have elevator attendants, and then we we automated that with buttons. It's almost like if there was like a strong elevator attendant union, that after we got the buttons, then they made sure that people stayed there. And then every elevator we got into, we had to ask the person to push the button for us in order to, you know, go up and down. And so that's kind of really, like an effective union. You really need to justify our existence. Like that's how hard we need to justify our value in this society is by giving people pointless titles to, to basically say, now we can still pay you. Um, even though we don't actually need you to be here standing around for hours, um, doing absolutely nothing. It's, uh, it's ridiculous, but I, I do feel like there is hopefully a bit of a shift you know, just from this whole pandemic and people having to stay at home and being like, you know, I actually like doing stuff. I wouldn't want to just yeah. do nothing all the time, but I'm still not able to survive, you know, um, and I don't have that option. I, I, I hope hopefully we have hit that. I personally do think that we need a whole paradigm shift that I think we, like a consciousness shift almost in order for this whole thing to just happen, you know, like almost overnight to an extent. Um, and hopefully we're going to get there on the timeline that your optimistic timeline of within a year. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we have to demand that our time is important to us. And you know, that's part of, of UBI too, is I think of it as self ownership of, of time. Like we, we should be demanding that, that we control how our time is spent and that as productivity increases, as we're able to do more with less, that part of that with less part means with less of our hours and we have more hours to ourselves. And, and yeah, that's that's a totally a mindset shift. And I guess along these lines too, I also just want to mention just for everybody listening, if they didn't already hear the news, but the author of Bullshit Jobs, David Graeber, died recently. Um, he was on vacation, you know, in Europe, and um, I don't think there's the cause of death is known. Um, but um, yeah, we lost him. And so I, I I still recommend like read his book. It's just it's it's so good. And it really explains just this, just this weird insistence that we create these these jobs that in, entirely are useless and they they don't need to exist, but 
recreate them anyways instead of actually freeing ourselves and our time to to do what's important and, and valuable to us. And instead we insist on on this these these weird taskmaster and, and you know, called duct taper and this is various categories of, of bullshit jobs that exist that that can be entirely limited and i think also we're seeing in this in this pandemic and actually um i i had actually i had hoped that he would uh write an, a kind of an updated article about bullshit jobs called like bullshit jobs covid edition and um i, I had written about this and uh actually it didn't hear back from before he died um, I may have to write this now since he's no longer with us, but uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that there's there's something interesting and new going on in yeah. this in the pandemic where you would think in this situation where millions of jobs like had to be eliminated, that a lot of these bullshit jobs would have disappeared. And in some cases, you know, they did because they had to. But in a lot of other cases, they're still existing in, in they're existing in these companies that are like very cash strapped. Like you, you, you know, your, your revenue is down. You are, are looking to like automate your, your, you're looking to, to cut people's hours and pay. And like, you're, you're trying to save money. And at the same time in this environment, these jobs still exist. <laughs> And that's what's so weird is like, how are we not able to to eliminate these still, you know? What are the jobs? Well, and, and this is what I, I, I want to like get feedback from people and, and get like a, a, a base of, of examples just like um, just like he did. I want but, you to write it. Um, <laughs> so. But there's um, like as kind of like general examples where um, let's say um, – uh, you know, you, you, you need to, to, um, okay. So there's, there's a lot of like human interaction, um, and like, um, um, not wanting to like fire people involved. And so if someone's like important to you, then you'll potentially find something for them to do, um, in this environment right now. Uh, because you want to save them from being unemployed. And so, you know, there's, there's this kind of like, um, I don't know, I maybe called like a, like a, like a mercy bullshit job or like a, like a sympathy bullshit job or something. I don't know, but like, it's a, it's a way of not firing people. And, and that goes into this kind of, um, conversation too, as far as like lesser discussed reasons about basic income from like work perspectives. And I think one of those perspectives is employers. And it's like, it's, I think there's a good argument that, that you should be able to, to fire people um, that are not doing good jobs, sorry. And it should be easier to do. Well, wait, you just froze when you said, I think there's an argument that you should be able to fire people and then it's froze for a second. Am, am I back now? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. So yeah, there's, I think that, that employers should be able to fire people um, without worrying that, you know, by firing them, that they are going to be you know, falling into poverty. They're going to be suffering from this. So like right now as an employer, 
you do feel like a responsibility to actually be the person that's getting income to people. And I don't think any employer should have that responsibility. Like it's not, it should be no one's responsibility to make sure that, that people have enough money to live and feed their families. Um, you know, that should just be a given as part of society. And so once you make that a given and once you actually have UBI, then that makes it so that employers can actually be relieved of that kind of responsibility. And you can actually make decisions that are actually best for your business and best for the em employee too. Because like, I mean, you do, employees themselves don't want to be in jobs that, that right. they know they're necessary for. They too will just be wanting there to stay, to get the paycheck. And maybe they're in a situation too where, you know, there's friction between the employer and the employee, you know, they hate each other, but like they, they're still there and that's bad for productivity and it's bad for the entire office. And you want to, you want to fix that. And, and there's, um, there's a really cool uh, story that I, I learned from actually the, um, um, the German group. Uh, so this is the mind Grundein Komen group that has been, that has been like, um, handing out raffling these basic incomes for a year. Um, and, uh, the, the person who who is is um, you know best known for that, like the head of that, his name is 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 Micah, and uh, he learned um, like so they did like this kind of experiment where they hired an intern, and they they it was kind of like an unconditional intern job, and so the, it, it was it was the situation where they paid her to be the intern and and do this this work that they needed to be done. But also, it was unconditional, and so like she didn't actually have to show up to work. Um, it was that she she chose to because she wanted to do that work, and so it was kind of like this experiment and seeing you know, what does that relationship look like? How does it change? And he explained how, as an employer, he got this new feeling that he'd never experienced before as a result of this when he got into a fight with her, um, well, you know, like a fight fight, but like you know they had a disagreement and she was feeling that she actually, she wasn't being like given enough responsibility and um, like enough things, you know, to do. And, um, and so she was like, I'm not going to show up to work tomorrow. And, uh, you know, he was like disappointed and, 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 and saddened by that, that, that she wasn't going to show up to work. And then when she, she did actually show up to work the next day and he felt this like sense of relief and kind of like joy that like she like so wanted to be there that she like chose to, you know, to be there. And that made him feel really good that, that they're doing like important work there. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, that's like a perspective that no one like ever mm -hmm. like talks about as far as like, what would it feel like to be an employer where you know that everyone is there because they want to be there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would change so much. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the workplace environment, I think all around would just be like, people would want to then it, it would just be like a, um, it would have the effect of making other people also just want to be there to be there because yeah. then you're around other people who are being there to be there. And, you know, you're able to fill your day with something that feels a little bit more like a nice work environment, um, positive, uh, you know, purposeful, not just a burden. Really interesting. Um, yeah. 
I think that like I think like Dan Price has um yes, yeah, I was CEO of Gravity that. is like the closest to that. Like cuz there's right. not a basic income, but like they're getting paid over $70,000 a year everyone there. And so because of that, like there is an environment where they want to be there. And right. you know, he's an employer who actually does actually care about like why they want to be there in in the you know, giving them um, a lot of, of time, you know, they can, they're free to like take paid leave. They're free to go on vacation. He encourages them to take vacations. Like this is an environment where people really want to be there and they don't have to be there. And because of that, like they actually have really high productivity. They've done very well through this, you know, pandemic. They've actually been able to increase their revenue greatly um, when everyone else has been like hurting. And so it really does show how, and what, it, what that means to actually have a labor force of people who like, are excited because they're they're there because they want to be there, and I, that's why I say that that when it comes to like savings from UBI, um, you know the typical stuff is is saying that we'll you know we'll have less crime, we'll have better health, but another big savings is this productivity where wow. you actually flip this so that people are wanting to do what they're doing, and then then you can actually really have a lot more productivity growth and and do better work and higher quality um, than we have right now. Yeah, that would be so huge. Um, I want to live in in that world. Um, and then I actually could see a lot of people with UBI, you know, if they see people going to work and actually like feeling purposeful there and having something to do that they enjoy with people that they like, them wanting to also be like, wait, I want to get in on that. Like, I also want to be doing things that I feel are purposeful and actually fulfill me. Um, and not just necessarily, or if you want to sit around, that's fine. But like, not just necessarily just sit around you know, um, doing things that actually fulfill you and, and yeah. knowing that the options are out there and it's not just simply to get a paycheck. Um, that would be amazing. But, um, yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Um, Scott, we have been going for two hours and 20 minutes. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, cover or talk to, talk to listeners oh. about? Well, I guess, you know, let's end with, um, you know, plugging the, the, the March is happening. That's, uh, you know, yeah. September 19th. So, you know, people should go to basic income March and, you know, it, it's, it's not too late to, to plan something, um, around there, wherever you're located. If there's not like a location there yet, um, you can possibly do something. Um, but if there is something in your area uh, around you, definitely, you know, if you can, um, be a part of that. And if you can't be a part of that, then there's also another option, um, which is uh, the Watt app. And so uh, what you do there is you you download Watt on your on your phone, and um, then there's the the basic income march option through Income Movement, where um, what you would do is let's say you know you go on a walk or or it even works like on a treadmill or or you know stair stepper or whatever, like any kind of of activity that you're doing, um, you can actually have your steps counted towards this. So, you know, we can uh, hopefully have like, you know, millions of, of virtual like steps in this March um, through people um, doing that through the app. So I recommend that people down that and, and take advantage of, of, of that as well. I think that's pretty cool. Can you, can you um, just like spell that for us? Uh, Watt is W A T T. Okay, so it is W A T T. Okay, all right. Um, so you guys can download that, and then also the UBI Mart. There is one in Los Angeles that I'm planning on going to. Um, it is starts in MacArthur Park. 
um, at two o'clock where, you know, you can also just do it from your car as well, like decorate your car and everything. It starts at two and it's probably going to kick out, kick off around two 30 or three. Um, but they're across like 40 cities across the, um, the world actually. So go to basicincomemarch.com for more information there. Um, and yeah, and if you want to go visit, you know, if you want more of Scott's work, then there are links in the description below that you, and you can go check him out there and hear more of him talking about universal basic income and getting more educated. Um, but thank you so much, Scott, for coming on the channel. It's always such a pleasure to have you. It's always incredibly educational and interesting. Um, I know everyone else feels the same way. They, they want you to come back on soon. Um, but it, it's been awesome. So, um, yeah, yeah, thanks for having me on again. Always happy to, to chat with you and have a nice uh, conversation about this, get into some deep stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, so guys, thank you for watching and, um, I will see you all later. Bye. See you later. I'd like to thank my Patreons, Justin Tang, Miss Fairy Morgan, Mike Sang, Dylan J. Herschel, Jeffrey Cummings, Mr. Tortilla, Jonathan Huang, James Abrams, Michael Kim, and my Phoenix patrons, Marcel Castor, Methy Moonsap, Sasha Dembski, Kay, Nel Nieves, Scott Santins, Franklin Diaz, John Sullivan, and Nydia D. And to all of my other Patreons, thank you guys so much for supporting this channel, and thank you for watching. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you later.